Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 198. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Morgan Jaffe. And today, Morgan, you've selected a chapter from a book I'm really fond of entitled Image Ethics in the Digital Age, edited by Larry Gross, John Stuart Katz, and Jay Ruby. And this book is essentially a textbook, a collection of different chapters written by different individuals. And today, you've selected chapter 8, which is entitled Fair Use and the Visual Arts, Please Leave Some Room for Robin Hood, written by Stephen E. Whale. And as a starting question for you, Morgan, though it's a frequent fallback of mine, I'd love to know what captivated you with this chapter in particular? Beyond the fact that it sounded pretty catchy, because who doesn't want to talk about this Robin Hood idea of taking from the rich and giving to the poor? I think that fair use is an important topic, and it sounds like a really interesting topic. And I think it's something that I would like to learn more about, or I think in general people could learn more about. What's new to me is the idea of fair use in visual arts. I don't think I would ever call myself a visual artist. I don't know if I would even call myself an artist, but I definitely work more with audio. And I thought this would be a really interesting discussion because our media consumption and everything that goes into it changes a lot. I think I was also interested in this idea of Robin Hood taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And it doesn't just have to be money. It can also be other things worth of value. And in this case, art, which I don't know if it's always valued enough in our society and our culture as a whole. And I think those are all great reasons for going to this chapter. I appreciate the fact that you bring up Robin Hood because that imagery hadn't been very central in my reading or anticipation of this chapter but brings up some interesting ideas about how we as people participate in, consume, and consider art, which I think as a term and in a lot of historical contexts, many of us associate with wealthy or the upper class, whether that's who's producing the art or the people who are most interested in the story of or observation of the art. And I think things are gradually changing as media, be it visual or otherwise, are more democratized, both in the tools that people use to create them. It's relatively inexpensive if you want to start a podcast to buy certain microphones and find a hosting site. And similarly, because of realms like the internet, the consumption of quote-unquote art is also democratized, and I think is less and less withheld by certain classes or certain groups of people. And I'm personally a fan of that, but I also don't think that shift is without conflict or frustration because any cultural change can be uncomfortable when it involves a paradigm shift or something similarly monumental. I want to touch really quickly on one thing you said about democratizing art. And in a lot of ways, I agree with you. You were saying that art is more accessible through the internet. Or there are programs at libraries where, say, students can get in for free or at discounted rates. And while I think these are both steps in the right direction, it also brings to mind the fact that, say, a student can use their college ID to get into a museum for free. First and foremost, they have to be able to pay for college. Or the fact that, yes, while you can access art online, that involves being able to get online, which is a privilege within itself or something that not everyone has access to with all of our digital divides. 
in Massachusetts, there's also a program, and I don't know if they do this in other states or not, with a library card, you can get access to different museums, like the Museum of Science or the MFA or the PBD Essex Museum. But I believe that in order to have a library card, you need to have an address. And this is all something we can come back to, but it's all about the idea of this chapter of making art available to everyone. Which is a really valuable clarification to make and gets at the relationship this chapter has with the public and how various individuals fit into the composite that makes up our society. On the first page of the chapter, Whale says, quote, If copyright's initial purpose was, as federal judge Pierre Anne Laval has argued, to be an incentive that would stimulate progress in the arts for the intellectual enrichment of the public, then what is basically required in order to determine whether any particular use is or is not a fair one is a two-pronged inquiry. First, is the use consistent with the copyright's underlying purpose of stimulating further productive thought and public instruction? Second, if so, does it then do so without unduly dampening copyright's incentive for creativity? End quote. And when I first read this, I was a little bit taken aback related to ideas of ownership and sharing, which I think gets back to this democratic ideal, because in my mind, as a young person, copyright has often felt somewhat selfish to me, that you're finding an idea or an expression of an idea and claiming ownership of it in some capacity, which to me has felt like one of the highest forms of hubris. However, this presents an excellent counterexample that I find really convincing, which is not that copyright is selfish, but that in secluding and cloistering away certain ideas, you are encouraging, if not forcing, other people to be creative with the resources they have at their disposal. A previous episode of this show touches on fair use and video games, and Nintendo's rather hostile relationship to YouTube and other content creators who want to make video content regarding their games. And I bring that up because the video game industry has also presented moments where limitations are actually the crucible for creativity. Certain graphics used in Super Mario Bros., one of the most famous games of all time, are actually identical images that have simply been recolored. So mountains in the background and clouds in the sky are actually the same image file to save space on the cartridge that was originally used to distribute that video game. And so I was really fascinated by this idea that these limitations would, quote, stimulate further intellectual discourse, because I think my relationship to intellectual discourse has often been very different. I have felt intellectually stimulated by classes or media that I've consumed, which have given me ideas, authors, feelings, etc. for me to process and perhaps rework in a podcast or something similarly creative. But the idea that the opposite of that, turning off the hose and seeing what people will create, to me, is a fascinating and welcome interpretation of copyright as a pillar of our legal system. I think that's a really interesting point to bring up. And it kind of goes to what Whale talks about as this ever-growing media environment. I agree with you. Why can't we be inspired by other things in our surroundings? Sometimes that's a field of flowers or a river or trees. I feel like a lot of the time, visual arts tend to focus on landscapes. When we think of Monet, we think of lily pads or the French countryside. And that's great that that's what inspired him. 
But I find that a lot of what inspires me is art that already exists. Don't get me wrong, I can think that a sunset or the sky is beautiful. In fact, I find that if I take pictures, a lot of it ends up somehow being a sky. But when I think of what actually inspires me to do my own art, it's music or a movie or a book. And so when it comes to fair use, someone could argue, well, you're just taking inspiration from a piece of art that someone has already created. You're stealing their thoughts and their ideas and their work. But I like to think that instead it's that their thoughts and ideas and work have inspired me and made me want to create my own elements. And that's not to say that you can't see the inspiration, but sometimes I think with quote unquote good art, that's a big part of it. And at the same time, I do understand why people might want this copyright claim and be able to protect their work and claim fair use. I think that artists are never truly paid enough and people assume, well, why should I pay you X amount when I can get a similar quality, in this case print, from someone else for just as much or less? And I think that art gets taken for granted a lot of the time. It turns into this conversation of when people go to a museum saying, why is this here? I could have created this myself. But the fact remains that you didn't. Throughout your response, my mind immediately went to and lingered on a linguistic metaphor of punctuation. And to phrase it simply, I think a lot of artists who are inspired by other art will say art number one and are creating art number two see the first as more of a comma than a period. To them, the world of art is more like an expansive root network than a dotted line with clear starts and stops. And that may not be how they would phrase it, but that feels like what you're describing and actually what Whale brings up in a quotation I will share momentarily. And I think I have a very similar relationship to what inspires me, but I also appreciate, at least looking at how I operate in a lot of ways, that periods are necessary punctuation and they help us break up different ideas or at least give people room to breathe, pause, and think about what they're consuming or participating in. And I know as someone with very verbose sentences and a lot of ideas that to me often feel connected, there is value in separating where you can and breaking things up. But I think that's primarily useful on the receiving end of art because on the creative end, to see someone really inspired and in a sense of flow they may see no pauses, and they might also feel time slipping away from them in an almost euphoric sense of creation. And so I think it is really interesting to see, as this chapter on occasion illustrates, how artists and consumers of art, whoever they may be, interact with one another across the divide of creating and distributing. The aforementioned quotation, which is on page 172 of this book, is from the California-based experimental music and art collective Negative Land. Quote, Artists have always perceived the environment around them as both inspiration to act and as raw material to mold and remold. However, this particular century has presented us with a new kind of human environment. We are now all immersed in an ever-growing media environment, an environment as real and just as affecting as the natural one from which it sprang. End quote. And going along with the linguistic metaphor I had mentioned, I think this quotation might argue that life, in an artistic sense, is a lot more like a list with commas interposed at various places than it is like a novel, 
with a series of sentences, clear punctuation, and even chapter breaks. And I'm not saying that it has to be one or the other, but I lean towards the messier interpretation because I think life and the natural world that has been presented to people is incredibly chaotic. And order is a human concept to try and navigate and interpret the chaos. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think it's worth considering how we project certain systems of organization and categorization onto the world, both artistic and otherwise. I'm going to dive deeper into this idea of order and chaos and value and worth. Just the other day, I was playing this board game with my roommates. I'm blanking on the name, which I really wish I wasn't, but maybe we'll put that in the show notes later. It's a game all about buying art. You're given a certain number of images, let's say 50 pictures to go through, of famous paintings. There was Monet and Manet and and a bunch of images where you might not know the artist, but you look at the picture and go, I know that piece. You roll a die and you each go around this board and wherever you land, the whole premise of the game is to make as much money as you can by buying and selling these pieces of art. You roll the die and you see where you land. Sometimes you might land on a piece that says that you can buy a painting from the bank or there's going to be an art auction based on one of the paintings you've already purchased and acquired. And what's interesting about this game is that the prices of the paintings change each time you play it. In each sitting, the painting might be worth $2 million or $7 million. The highest amount any painting could be was $10 million, and the least amount was $500,000. There was also two forgery cards, which made the painting completely worthless. But unless you have this painting, the cards flip down, so you don't know how much each painting was worth. The hardest part I had with this game was that I would see a painting that I loved the imagery, but I had to take my feelings out of the equation because these prices were randomly assigned. I don't know if the game was going for this, but you could argue that in general, that's how the art world works. That each painting, regardless of if it's considered to be beautiful or not by one person, is assigned this arbitrary value, this worth. There might be a painting at auction in the game that I really loved and thought would be worth a higher number, whereas you, Kip, might say, well, that's not worth as much to me because I don't have an emotional connection to it or I don't like the style of the painting. So when you talk about this order and chaos that fair use can bring and the art world can bring, that's automatically where my mind went. And I can see why. That game sounds really interesting. I was reminded of the anecdote about the rap group Two Live Crew and the U.S. Supreme Court case Campbell versus Acuff Rose Music. The case revolved around Two Live Crew's 1989 version of Roy Orbison's 1964 hit song, Oh Pretty Woman, and ultimately, the court determined that this song could be characterized as a parody, and I won't fixate on that anecdote. I would encourage listeners to research it for themselves. I think it's very nuanced. But Whale goes on in the chapter to say that there's occasionally difficulties where deadpan or elusive ironies of postmodernist visual art are also parodies, but may not be interpreted in the same way as the aforementioned case. Whale brings up Rogers versus Coons, a case in which the court never really understood what the artist was going for. 
And to me, these examples connect to what you are saying in this board game where art prices fluctuate and where indeed personal interpretation may not matter through the following principle, at least as I see it. The law can be standardized in a society. It is debated, discussed, written down, and ultimately ratified in the appropriate districts, whether that's a state or a nation. But art cannot be standardized because we all have a different relationship to it. Someone who's younger might hate visual art because they associate it with really long museum trips that their parents dragged them into. But other people, let's say studio art majors, would understandably see art in a different way. And I'm not saying that one of these is correct or incorrect, but my point is that art, I believe, by its very nature, is not meant to be standardized. You can definitely teach proper practices or new techniques as they emerge, but to standardize art, which I think fair use often does, is a naturally thorny issue because law and art are, in my mind, opposed on that axis. One thing you just said that really resonated with me is that art is not meant to be standardized. There's a lot of standardization that happens with today's society. We try to standardize state testing. We try to standardize how our food looks at the grocery store. We try to standardize medicine. There are so many ways that we try to standardize everyday life that maybe we shouldn't. And I think you're right. Art is not meant to be standardized. But then we have all these fair use rules and laws. At the end of the chapter, Whale says, quote, Fair use is quintessentially a don't ask practice. First comes the use and the discussion of whether or not it was a fair use follows. If and when a use authorized in advance is only an authorized use, not a fair one, end quote. And I think the biggest reason that stuck out to me was because this whole chapter is focusing on all the little minute details a fair use, about how if it's used for education, or about how if it's going to help in the market for that piece of intellectual property. But then at the very end of the chapter, Whale talks about how authorized in advance is only an authorized use, not a fair one. Fair use sounds like it's completely run on the practice of, we would like to standardize this, but we don't really know how, and we can't really do that. So instead, I don't want to say that the idea is to ask for forgiveness and not for permission, but that's entirely what the system has set it up to be. So on one hand, I feel like this chapter is all about fair use and the different rules and what you need to know. And on the other hand, I feel like it ends by saying, but in reality, there's nothing we can really do to control this. So ask for forgiveness and see what happens. I was really taken by that quotation as well, because for me it brings up the issue of artistic consent. And we live in a world, to my observation, where consent is increasingly important and discussed, as it should be. But I also feel that part of human experience is taking certain risks and, in certain cases, bending or breaking certain rules. I'm not advocating for anarchy. But I feel there are character-building moments in a lot of our lives, say, sneaking out as a teenager, that show us something about the world because we have to navigate in unfamiliar territory where we don't know where the walls are, so to speak. And I'm not saying that's a way to constantly live one's life, but in these artistic examples, imagine a world where you have to go to an artist every time you want to sample or reproduce their work 
In the case of certain large artists, they might never have time to respond. And if that's the case, you might never be able to reproduce their work, which, in an artistic setting, is essential for reinterpretation and criticism through creation. And I think the world of art works best as a conversation. And oftentimes, rules present us with more fragmented dialogues, where people in power have more to say and ultimately have the last word. Sometimes those people in power are artists, but other times they might be legislators. And so to me, fair use remains this nebulous space because human experience, and one of our key ways of interpreting it, are by nature nebulous, chaotic, and difficult to contain. But indeed, the issue of consent when it comes to art is really interesting to me. And I use the term consent, a word that Whale doesn't bring up, very intentionally, because I often associate it with incredibly vulnerable and intimate moments, and while many of us might go to sexuality in our minds, I also think the realm of art for many creators is equally, if not more intimate, on a certain level because of what art represents for the individual and their ability to interpret their world. But of course, this chapter is dense with ideas, some of which we didn't even get to. And so Morgan, before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? I think I'm most curious about the audience's opinions. And so what I would love to hear from someone who's listening who is an artist or a content creator, how do you draw inspiration and do you use other people's art? Do you feel like fair use expands what you do or is it something that constricts it? And would a clear set of rules make everything more understandable or would it make everything more limiting? Similar to your call to content creators, I'd really love to hear from consumers of art, whether they are museum goers, readers, movie watchers, etc. How do you feel about fair use and do you think you have a solid understanding of it or maybe one that differs from those around you? Of course, fair use very visibly touches on the realm of law, so I would love to hear from any legal scholars or lawyers themselves on this thorny topic and how you interpret what is or is not fair use in an artistic setting. Lastly, a moment at the bottom of page 174 in this chapter that we didn't get to in this conversation, but is definitely worthy of further thought. Whale says, quote, that words can be adequately defined by other words is what makes a dictionary possible. In general, however, images cannot be defined adequately at all, either by words or other images. Neither can they be adequately described. A work of visual art, unlike a literary work, is incapable of yielding up a quotable extract, some small detail that might give a better sense of the whole. And I find that really fascinating because it brings up questions of the realms that art should explore. Dictionaries, as one example, help us to understand one another, various terms we have for our world. But I would make the contention, and I'm open for debate, that some of the best art looks outward at things we cannot understand or have not previously considered, and may therefore lack clear definitions, summaries, or terms. To me, that's beautiful in a very nuanced way. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and of course, we are only two content creators or artists, depending on your definitions. So we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. 
You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show and also supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you can enjoy perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And I'm Morgan Jaffe. See you next time.